Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Take two. It's Ken Dashow's okay. Beetle Revolution. One, two, three, four. <laughs> This episode of Ken Dash has Beatles Revolution is focused about mania, fandom. It was inspired by our last guest, Peter Asher, talking about the British invasion craziness that they were playing someplace rural in America. And it was on the stage. You know, they would have a truck where the side would open up and they were playing. And everybody rushed the stage and the police said, run. So he and Gordon, remember it was Peter and Gordon, they ran off this thing, they jumped, and Peter lost his glasses. You know, Peter's the guy who looked like Austin Powers. He scrambled back, he grabbed the glasses and kept on running. When he looked back, there was a girl kissing the grass where the glasses had fallen. And he said, look, I'm not Paul McCartney. You know, I'm not John Lennon. We're just this, you know, sort of folky duo. And... He also told the story of being in an elevator, and this kid says to him, are you a Beatle? And he said, no. And the father said, you're English, ain't you? Yeah. You got a guitar, don't you? Yeah. Well, you're a Beatle. And it's that mindset of just being so passionate about something that the closest you can get is good enough. So there was Beatlemania, there was the British invasion. But before that, as I've always said, there was a lineage of fan passion. Bing was the first guy. Bing Crosby had all the women super fans. And then came Frank Sinatra, who threatened Bing's hold. The Bobby Soxer craze. It had to be you. And then, blown away, both of them pushed aside by Elvis Presley, the king. And then, coming along, Jerry Lee Lewis and Little Richard and Chuck Berry. And then, here come the Beatles, 64, and the whole world changes. And in order to get on the charts, you had to even pretend to be British. The Sir Douglas Quintet, a Tex-Mex band from Texas. She's about a mover. They had to pretend they were British. That line from American Pie, as the players tried to take the field, the marching band refused to yield. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band, you couldn't get the band off the field. None of the American players, musicians, could get on the charts. And you know what? It's continued ever since. You think about all the girl groups, the Spice Girls. And then the boy groups, all the way from New Kids on the Block to BTS, the big K-pop band that it's like the Beatles. The difference is, is that the Beatles were the biggest boy band in the world. And people who don't get it say, well, they're a boy band. Yes, they were for 16 months. And then they fired the boy band and started writing and coming up with Eleanor Rigby and Tomorrow Never Knows, and then firing that band and becoming psychedelic, and then becoming Sgt. Pepper, and then getting rid of the colors and becoming black and white. They kept morphing. That's why the Beatles last more than just the moment of fandom in any given year between 64 and 70. But there's also fandom for TV shows. There's fandom for, for movies. The whole Star Wars craze, if that's not fandom, what is? I mean, they're good movies, but there's a passionate subculture. Think about all the LARPing that goes on. And there's a TV show about a family of New Jersey mobsters that caught the world's attention. It was called The Sopranos. And as big as it was here, I was shocked to find out that there's a passion for it around the world. I go to London. 
all the stores that sell, you know, sort of English flags and, and pictures of Big Ben. Guess what? They all have Sopranos posters there, some signed as well. Which brings me to this week's guest, Michael Imperioli. Christopher Maltasante of The Sopranos, an old friend of mine and a big Beatles fan, joins me on Ken Dash House Beatles Revolution. Q104.3 with me in the studio is an old friend, and he is to me, but an old friend to you, who you last saw dying in a car, perhaps Christopher Maltasante. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Michael Imperioli, welcome back to Q104.3. Thanks for having me, man. It's good to be here. That is so much, you know, you do a, a part, you, you've acted in so many things. You're in this TV series now, Lincoln Rhyme Hunt for the for the Bone Hunter. Bone Collector. For the Bone Collector. And Sopranos is a thing. I go to England. I was just there for the holidays. There's Sopranos posters in all the stores. There's Union Jacks. There's, the, the you know, the the Tower of London, there's Abbey Road, and there are Sopranos posters. Wow, that's pretty wild. It doesn't, you you touched a nerve, that show touched a nerve in culture. You know, we're both Beatle fans. There's something about it that perpetuates. It's not fading away. There's an excitement to it. There is, and, and what's really remarkable, and, it, and, and it's only happened, I'd say, in the last two years. Um, started, well, particularly last year was like the 20th anniversary of the premiere of the show. Right. But there's a whole new generation of kids in their 20s <laughs> who never saw, you know, were, were just about born when the show went on the air. Right. Who now are like binging it on whatever streaming or service they can, but are really getting into it and really relating to it. And it's becoming, it's having this whole other life, which nobody ever could have predicted, you know. You, you don't know if something's going to endure or subsequent generations are going to get it or like it or have passion about it and it's it's kind of remarkable i'm i'm really happy about that actually i'm cool you should be proud of the work you did and everybody did because it really it does stand up nobody ever told a story like that from that point of view not just not as a nighttime soap opera but as opposed to being exciting and romantic and beautiful it's the nuts and bolts of getting through the day in this life Nobody ever shows that. Exactly. It's much more be uh, much more than just a story about the mafia and about a gangster. It is, and I think that's why people really related. I mean, to the characters and to what they would go through. And I think people there's a familiarity. Like people watch it. I always run into fans all the time. Like I just binge the whole series for the seventh <laughs> time. I mean, I hear that a lot. Right. For the seventh, eighth time, I watched the whole thing, and I'm like, I guess there's a certain comfort that people have in being around those people, which I guess is kind of scary because some of them are pretty psychotic. But uh, <laughs> but I, I understand that because there's a lot of, you know, I feel that way about certain movies and television, and, and, and uh, you know, you, you spend so much time with it and grow up with it, it becomes part of your life. Why do we watch our favorite movies over and over? Why do you and I listen to Beatle albums over right. and over again? I'm doing this Breakfast with the Beatles now. It's been about, what, 18, 16 years, and I've never stopped playing the Beatles. It's never, its popularity has never waned. And when we go to the Fest for Beatle fans, a third of the people are under 20. They're teenagers and children. And I get an email. My name is Carrie. I'm 10 years old. George Harrison is the sexiest man I've ever seen. 
because he's immortal. Incredible. He's immortal, no. Michael. He he wrote beautiful. Here comes the son to a daughter to a ten year old girl means the same as it did in nineteen sixty. No, that's true. My son, my youngest kid is eighteen. He started playing guitar when he was eleven, I think, and the first things he started playing were the early Beatles tunes. <laughs> You know, which got him into music. This is in, you know, 2009, you know. And you guys tell me this story. I'm sure Michael's going to say the same thing. Michael's not standing over him saying, I want you to learn these songs. Oh, not at all. This is what just he picked. He picked them. And he kind of sought them out and discovered them and learned how to play them and stuff. Ozzy is the biggest Beatle fan in the world. He said, you don't understand. You love the music. We're from Birmingham. You either you, you were smart and went to university, or if you weren't smart, you went to work in the factory. We didn't know there was a third option. Right. Playing music was to make 20 bucks in the weekend. You could make like a living and support a family playing music if you weren't handsome. I mean, the Beatles were good looking, but if you weren't in London, you could do this for a living. We never knew that. He goes, that's why we, we all owe them everything. And relating it to movies to me, it's like, you know, when, when Dustin Hoffman and Al Pacino, when New York actors start becoming stars as opposed to Robert Redford and gorgeous Hollywood, you know, tall, blonde, blue-eyed guys. Otherwise, you don't get into a TV show. People who look like average human beings, regardless of their talent, weren't on TV. It was always a handsome guy with perfect teeth and and a made-up name. (laughs) Right, that's true. That is true. And that changed everything. It really did. Michael Imperioli is my guest, and I just got a sneak preview of a movie that you directed. Did you, you start in it? I produced it and started it. It was directed by a good friend of mine, Bruno Dalmeida, and we shot it in uh, in Lisbon, Portugal, although it's set in kind of an ambiguous city that, somewhere. It's called Cabaret Maxine. You can get it on iTunes, Amazon, on demand, wherever you, but just remember Cabaret Maxine. It is the coolest indie movie. Think about Jim Jarmusch or David Lynch. It puts you in a set, where is it? That's what was my first thing. Where are we here? And you're absolutely right. I realized we're any place. Your character. My character's name is Benny Gaza. Benny's running an old school cabaret. Strippers, yeah. comedians, dance singers. And it does that fit in in 2020? Not really, but he believes in it and loves the people. He loves his performers and fighting against the world to keep this thing alive. And it's okay. It's just not... 2020 it's not you know looking at youtube videos it's alive and the mix of characters uh friend john ventimiglia as the host as the mc he was Artie buco on the sopranos he does such a beautiful job this world weary exhausted (laughs) man who just keeps going and has has nothing but keeps going it it just it reminds me personally of the the bleaker street scene when i was doing stand up in the late 80s bitter end yeah kenny's castaways kenny's castaways and all, the whole pat kenny world i learned what real that nuts and bolts of showbiz was um i was out to dinner with a the guy robert Rowland, who used to book the acts and host the, and there and had me as a comedian and we got to law and order and he was talking about chris maloney and he said to me you know chris maloney i said i've never met chris maloney he goes you know chris maloney I never met him. You know him well. I've never met him. He goes, bitter end. What? The guy who used to seat people, the Mater D, who used to try to be James Taylor with the long hair. Chris. That's Chris Maloney? Yeah, that's Chris Maloney. He, he was trying to do James Taylor, and he had that James Taylor hair. And it was okay. It just wasn't anything special. And he asked Bob, like, might give acting a shot. I'm like, try it, because I'm not sure you're going to break through here. And, you know, I Good wouldn't idea. even know... 
It didn't even dawn on me that in another world, he was the guy who was seating people with menus. That's pretty wild. It's that to me. All of this is coming back with Cabaret Maxine. There are gangsters. There's David Proval, right? Is David playing the, Proval, yeah, brilliant actor. Why? Why? Yeah. I, we always say this. Why isn't he working more? Everything he does is just magic. He is really great. Yeah, it's a, it's kind of a misfit family of performers that this guy puts together, and that they're his family really, and he lives for them, and it gets threatened by. The forces of gentrification and greed and that kind of thing, and uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a very honest movie, I think, and personal. And um, Johnny Ventimiglia, who played Artie Bucco, as you said, and Sharon Angela, we started in acting school when I was a teenager. I met Johnny when I was seventeen at Lee Strasberg Institute. Really, and before The Sopranos, we had done indie movies and theater. This director, Bruno Delmeida, this Portuguese director, used to live here. We did a movie together with him right before The Sopranos. So a lot of this, a lot of what's in the movie kind of reflects real life in some ways because over the years we've assembled our own family of misfit, you know, <laughs> sure. misfit toys. Well, that's how cast every, off That's how castaways. acting groups start. That's how every great little, you know, acting troupe, you bring your people along because you're comfortable working together. You know how it how it all fits together. You you we, you don't have to have long discussions to know what characters are. I see it in all my favorite filmmakers, the Coen brothers, who always go back to the same right, actors. Right, exactly. Because they know what they exactly. want. Your, your Scorsese group. does that. Spike Lee does that. You know, there's a lot of... Right. A lot of great directors that... Uh, create those worlds with those people over and over again. Yeah, absolutely. And because of this club, and as I said, it's old school burlesque and comedians and singers and, and dancers and dancing and acts and even the choreographer is just absolutely perfect what the girls can or can't do. Bring it back to the Beatles. Michael and I are huge yeah. Beatle fans and that's why we're here. When they get to Hamburg and they're playing the Club Indra and then to the Kaiser Keller, you're playing 46 nights in a row for, you know, about six to eight hours a night and sleeping in the storage room of the porno theater that Bruno, uh, uh, was it, Koschneider, Koschmeider owned. And they're sleeping next to the bathroom. They're washing in the urinals. And what would break any other person, George, John, they all said, greatest time we ever had because we could play. And we, he said, that's how we learned to play because you could, you had to be on stage that long. So you do literally anything. He said, so nothing scared us by the time, if you're playing eight hours a night, 45 minutes on, 15 minutes off, sleeping in a urinal, the only joy is the music. And they were shoegazers. They were just playing. And Bruno, for the history of, of rock and roll, comes in and screams at them, mock show, mock show. What? Do something, move. You're just standing there. We want to get these people up. <laughs> and so they learned to dance around and run. And John would dance around like a gorilla. And, you know, Paul would jump on top of the piano. And you learned how to do a show. And I thought I saw so much of that in Cabaret Maxime when you're trying to explain, do the flea joke, and then we'll move into this. And you're trying to build a show right. for the audience. And it's in your heart. It's something you love and care about. Yeah, and it's and it's also the character understands these performers. Like he knows most of these performers would never get a job anywhere else. Right, it's the only place they it's could the work. Only place they could, and he appreciates who they are and what they do, and wants to give them an opportunity 
to do that. But I did. I, so I didn't know that about uh, the Beatles. So they they were just kind of standing there, and then they realized they needed to. Uh, so they used to mess around on stage and curse at the audience and go yeah. crazy. And like, John would come out. John, and they've got pictures. Brian Epstein paid to have these pictures destroyed. He came out once in his underwear, wearing the toilet seat around his neck, and <laughs> took his comb and was said Heil Hitler and started doing goose steps while they started playing. Because you're punchy. You know, it's it's right. one in the, the morning. The audience is drunk. The audience uh, is drunk. Insane, yeah. You're insane. And the audience is going nuts. And it's getting so hot and crowded. And it blows up because... Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. They, the, the forbidden sin that you would get from watching this movie, they went to the other club owner's place because he offered them more money. Boom. You know, Kotschmeider gets nuts, gets them deported. They go home. They figured that's it. We have, we're still nothing. And like everything else in the Beatles story, or like any story, the fate sort of intervenes. Boxing Day, day after Christmas, they're doing a show in Liverpool, and one of the bands backed out. And somebody says, you know that, that band, the Beatles, uh, they said good things about them in Germany. I think they're around. I think they're back. All right, we'll throw them on. And everybody else is just playing like the shadows. You stand there and smile and strum a guitar. The Beatles come on, and without thinking about it, they go nuts. The place goes nuts. And that was the the match that lit the fuse. Mm. That, that was at the cavern? Yeah, there wasn't a cavern. It was like a, a dance hall, like upstairs at a bar. In Liverpool. In Liverpool. Yeah. And nobody had ever seen people go nuts and run on stage with their instruments and jump off the stage. And, you know, they were watching what Little Richard was doing and Chuck Berry and trying to take it even further and jumping, stage diving into the audience in 64. And from that moment on, boom, there's rock and roll. And why, are, why do you have three different singers? Everybody asks, why did you... You're playing eight hours a night. You can't sing, right. you know, five <laughs> sets in one right. night. John, you got to sing some. George, you sing. Ringo, they would make Ringo sing a couple. He was like, I'm not singing. Like you, ha I mean, we can't. You have to sing. You have to sing because we can't. And so it just becomes three guys in front and one guy in back, which it was always the handsome guy in front. One guy, one, one lead, guy, yeah. Yeah, lead singer. Yeah. And two, three, four guys behind him in with pompadours, just rocking with a guitar or a drum set. And suddenly, the Beatles have three guys in front. Um, John Lodge from the Moody Blues told that story. First time he saw them in Birmingham. They were the big local band. And they're like, oh, no, these guys from Liverpool, the headliners, you're the opener. What? We're the big, we're the big swinging dicks here in, you know, in, in Birmingham. No, nope, that's, that's it. You gotta, you, you're opening. And we stood in the front and crossed our arms. This better be good. He said, you have to remember, no one had ever seen three mics in front. One handsome guy. One who, mic. One mic. Three guys behind him, maybe singing some background. Which one's the lead singer? They're all the lead singer? He said, so then think about every band you've seen. Even with Bruce Springsteen, Stevie's singing. You know, everybody else is singing. The Rolling Stones, Keith is singing. Ronnie is singing. Even if when there's a dynamic front man, there are other guys in front who are singing. Right. I find it kind of insane that three of the greatest songwriters in history, right? Yep. Lived... <laughs> in the same like neighborhood 
at the same time and were around the same age. That I find kind of strange. Like, not only were they great musicians, but three of the greatest songwriters we've ever had live, you know, grew up in the same right three three bus stops away from crazy each other and yeah. and had to meet each other. It, those are those moments in life where you go. It seems like too much of a coincidence. It's harder to believe in coincidence than it is to believe in fate or meant to be right. or whatever word. Synchronicity you, or it, whatever, confluence of, you know, whatever. Paul told the story. He said, you know, they meet his friend Ivan Vaughn, int- brings him to the church social, the church fete that day, and, and introduces 15-year-old Paul McCartney to his friend, 16-year-old John Lennon. And he's always been asked, why did you hit it off like that? Even though you were sort of being you know, well, stand off a little with each other. He said, <coughs> Paul said, whenever I talk to friends, they go, what do you like to do? And Paul said, I like to write music. And my, your friends would look at you and go, oh, did you see the match last night? Oh, I thought they were going to get it. He goes, and nobody wanted to hear it. And John Lennon was the first person kid I ever met when he said, what do you like to do? He said, I like to write music. And John said, well, I like to write music. It was the first time someone else his age said, yeah, I write too. Wow. You want to, I mean, it's almost like sex in that sense of, hey, I like you, you like me, you want to get together. Right. And from that moment on, boom, to boom, to boom, to boom. But like you said, you can write, but to be at that level, right. to do it so fast. Michael and I have talked about this in the past. And the thing that always amazes me is the speed of how much it changed, how fast it changed. Nin- right. 1964, She Loves You, Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. 65, Eleanor Rigby. 66, Tomorrow Never Knows, quoting the Tibetan scholars, turn off your mind, relax, right. and float downstream. How do you get, how do you make that jump from she, you know, she loves you, I want to hold your hand, to turn off your mind, relax, and float downstream? Yeah, I know. That's why I always felt that whole theory that Paul died, you know, that, that whole thing. <laughs> yeah. I always said, okay, so the most famous guy in the world dies, and they managed to find a guy who not only looks just like him, can play the bass left-handed, can sing, you know, like nobody's business, and can still write the greatest songs in the world. Like that, right. that'll <laughs> you you people believe that's possible, <laughs> right? Exactly. A great it goes ma- on to keep playing for you know another 40, 50 right. years. Right. If it ended there, you go well. Who knows? But right. he's been writing for forty right. exactly. years at the same level. Exactly. You think there was a spare Beethoven somewhere right. back in Vienna in case something happened to that guy? We'll we'll keep an extra guy around. We, Michael, we, I remember you telling me you and your friends were looking at the clues and oh, things we used trying to, do to figure that. out. Yeah. And, they, you know, I'm sure they were, the British expression is taking the piss. I'm sure there was, they took a lot of liberties with screwing around with that to some extent. But seriously, when I, I was in, I was in uh, uh, London for the holidays, I go visit friends, we stay on Abbey Road. And on a, on a, rainy day and it was kind of a little bit of a wind it wasn't terrible but it was it was dark and cold and i said to jane i said to my wife before we go to the tube station i said let's count and i'm telling you the count there were 113 people waiting on the sidewalks for the opportunity to stand in the middle of the street and get their picture taken 113. and that's like every day probably. and it's literally 365. there's a camera there's a a, a, a abbey road cam that you can click on online and just check at any time, day or night, how many people are sitting there waiting. And not just kids, but I mean, middle-aged men, businessmen, who have the sweetest little, little boy smile on their face mm. to stand in the middle of this street. 
And the studio is right near there? Is yeah. That- it's simply EMI Studios that uh-huh. happens to be on Abbey Road, and it's right there. And McCartney told this story once, and he said, you know, sometimes, you know, I'm driving by or something, because he lives around Cavendish. He lives a few blocks away. And sometimes you're sitting there, and, you know, you, gotta, you can't beep the horn. You know, and you realize you're responsible for it. So you can't, you really can't beat the horn. You know, so they're, you know, they're taking their snaps. And sometimes they think about jumping out of the car and, you know, just photobombing them and getting back in. And I forgot who the interview was. No, it was, and he said, then it was my driver who said, you could jump out, but then what? You can't get back in the car. What? You can't. They'll turn the car over. He goes, oh, it's been years. He goes, no, you, 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 you could say photobomb and then you have to run and beat them to your house and get the door open and closed, but then they'll know where you live. What, if you did jump out, then what? He's like, yeah, no, you're right. Imagine a man in his mid-70s and to, to greet your fans, like you said, there's an intensity to it and it's the same, the Sopranos just had a convention. Right. It was just a Sopranos convention. When we talk about I hosted the Beatles convention now for 20 years, and a third of the people are still children. It, it goes from 90 to five years old. Oh. And at the, you know, the Sopranos convention, it really touched a nerve. It's a cultural touchstone in people's lives, not just but then, but clearly, like you said, if, if, people, if there are 20-year-olds who come up to you and go, oh my God, you're the guy. Yeah, it's pretty wild that, that there's still an interest and it still touches a nerve. I will tell one funny story about I, I was flying to London with, for a movie premiere uh, with my mom. I was taking my mom to London, and uh, we were sitting in Virgin Airlines first class, and we're getting, you know, it's really nice. Yeah. You know, my mom's never been to England before. She's really excited. And then all of a sudden, I, you know, right opposite us, Paul McCartney sits down. So I tap my mother, and I'm like, I point over and she, her eyes just go. <laughs> and we're sitting there and then, you know, it's an overnight flight and they give you a bed, you know, turn, your sheet turns into a bed and they give you like a comforter and yep. a pillow and all that. So, you know, after dinner, I look over and I see the bed, Paul McCartney making his bed. Putting, they give you actually pajamas in first class. I love that. He puts on the pajamas and gets under the covers and I'm like... Now that I never thought I'd see. It's one thing to see a beetle in person. It's like there's a beetle going to bed for the night and getting under the covers. That I never would have thought I've seen. There's a bucket list moment. That was pretty cool. Yeah, that was. So he he actually did when he was shooting that thing with James Corden in Liverpool. I have a friend, Jackie Spencer, who does tours, and she's my favorite tour guide. I don't get a kickback from this or anything, but she tailors it to what you want. If you were doing it, she'd say, well, Michael, how much time do you have? Do you want to focus on the clubs or where they were born or their schools? Wow. Do you want to spend most of your time in this area or that, or do you want an wow. overview? So she does a little questionnaire for your group or for you, which I think is wonderful because people have different levels of interest. So she takes them down to the docks, and there's the statue now of the Beatles that they have there. And she's explained the history, how it took forever, and the docks were dangerous, and now it's upscale. And as she's talking to the tour group, Paul and James Corden, come, they did, he did just what he always wanted to do. He jumps out and photobombs their group and took pictures with wow. them. You've seen it in the special, and everybody's going nuts. Hey, got to go. Yeah, thanks. And gets in the car and runs away. And Jackie said, that was amazing. And she said, but now what? <laughs> now, now what am I? Now what do I show them? Right. right. Hey, you want to go see the churchyard? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like, there's nothing. It's, you know, we yeah. can just go to lunch because we're done. You're we're done. done. Nothing else. You want to see Ringo's house? Okay. 
<laughs> done at, at 9 30 in the morning the tour ended because that's it and we're done he said she said and then the worst thing was the next day the next tour is okay so we're gonna go to penny lane first yes in the back are we going to see paul mccartney today um, <laughs> no no not today did I they think. think that she arranged that that maybe I, somehow, I don't or? i don't know you know you're so overwhelmed by i can't it. imagine him yeah. i mean it's there's, I've never said to any musician ever, I would be embarrassed to say, have you ever met Mick Jagger? Or tell me, tell me what's Pete Townsend like? It seems rude, but I've never had a qualm about asking somebody, tell me your Beatles story. And every single musician to the highest level loves talking about the Beatles. Mm -hmm. I just had Bob Geldof up. He's going to be on. He told me one of the most romantic, beautiful stories of seeing him in Dublin as a kid and it just literally, I'm sitting here crying at the. He's such a beautiful Celtic storyteller. He saw them live. Play, yeah, when live. he was ten years old, his his mom made his sister and her friend take the younger brother, schlep him along to the concert, and you know, it just he said it was just nothing else. You couldn't, he, as he said, you couldn't think about anything else in mm. life. Just nothing else mattered after you saw that. Steve Van Zandt saw them at Chase Stadium. He tells me that story. Isn't that wild? And said that. Um, they and they had, I don't think they had monitors back then no, on stage. Didn't. Plus, at all everybody's screaming. There's fifty thousand people screaming, so they can't really hear what they're playing. But he said it sounded exactly like the record. He said it was incredible. I, it, the way it sounded, sitting there in the stands, sounded like the record. He, I, I got to ask Ringo when he said, "I said, so I'm an amateur drummer. Like, if you can't hear what's in front of you, and they couldn't hear themselves singing." But you're behind them. They can at least look at each other's hands to see where the chords are. How are you able to play the drums if you literally can't see or hear anything? And he said, honest answer? He goes, I watched Paul's ass. He goes, Cause we played these songs so many times. Once we counted off, I just followed his ass and I knew where we were. And he wasn't kidding. You know, it sounds ha-ha, but that's how he kept a show going for 30 minutes just watching these guys bounce and staying with it because they knew all the, that's the difference of playing eight hours a night, you know, for, for a, year, a couple of years, years yeah. and years. Like you, there's nothing that can throw you. What was it? 30 minutes? Is that all, their set? Was I, about yeah, I think that? it was 35 minutes. Really? Yeah. It's like the Ramones almost or something. <laughs> huh? yeah, yeah. The Ramones did twice as many songs in 30 minutes than the Beatles probably, <laughs> but um, that's pretty wild. Why was that? Was it just, just that's all it was. You had like five, six acts. Seven, you know, uh, you had all these different acts, and here are the headliners played for a half hour, and that was the show. They, it wasn't a sense of you played for two hours. No, you were the headliner. You played your half hour. Boom, in the truck, on you go. And all uh, those because like Murray the K and all those cavalcades we had as kids growing up. It was always you do those were four or five songs, mm -hmm. and you're off. So if you're the headliner, you did a half hour. Yeah, and it, it's amazing to me when. We talk about people starting. I mean, again, Cabaret Maxime just really grabbed me by the heart. I'm it's, happy about that. It's I'm glad you people. It. It's not. There's a sense of desperation, but it's not desperation. It's a celebration of people working as hard as they can. Not great performers, average performers, but giving it every single thing they have. And people are broken, and people have emotional problems, and. You know, the person who runs the club has to try to fix that. A, because you have a heart and care, but B, you have to have a show. You have to get a show on if you need your star performer to be ready to go tonight. And we all see that so many times. People have stage fright. People are drunk. People, your job is to get 
the 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 performer on the stage, and exactly. you have to fight through it. Michael, it's so great having you here. Great to Thank be you. here, always. So, uh, Lincoln Rhyme, Hunt for the Bone Collector. Friday nights, 8 o'clock on NBC. How's it going? It's good? Going very good. It's a good show, yeah. Is it nice being back on, like, Sirius TV? It's really nice, yeah. It's nice having a steady job. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were great on Law & Order. Movies I are not so not as steady, you know? They come and go. And you... I just did a movie uh, in New Orleans called One Night in Miami, and it's about Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X, and they're around the time of Ali's conversion to Islam. And I played uh, Angelo Dundee, who was Muhammad You played Ali, manager. His yeah, trainer, trainer who, uh, so, you know, during the, when he became the champion. Right. We just, the actress uh, Regina King directed it. It's her first feature, and we just wrapped that in New Orleans last week. So that'll come out later this year, and it's, uh, I think it's going to be really good. Who plays Muhammad Ali? Uh, a young actor named Eli Gorey, who's on the show Riverdale. Right, right, right. Um, and he is awesome. He's really, really good. And uh, Kingsley Benadir plays uh, Malcolm X. And it's going to be a good one. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks. You know you always have a home here. We Thanks, my friend. Up. Great to be here. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.